verse 51 at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the earth shook the rocks split and the tombs broke open the bodies of many holy people who died were raised from to life they came out of the tombs after jesus resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people when the centurion and those with him who were guarding jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened they were terrified and exclaimed surely he was the son of god many women were there watching from a distance they had followed jesus from galilee to care for him for his needs among them were mary magdalene mary the mother of james and joseph and the mother of zebedee's sons as evening approached there came a rich man from arimathea named joseph who had himself become a disciple of jesus going to pilate he asked for jesus's body and pilate ordered that it be given to him joseph took the body wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Thanks for reading, Selena. Uh, good morning. Welcome to City Hill. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I think Matt's done now. We're going to get back in track all the way through the sermon. Um, uh, uh, welcome uh, to City on a Hill. If it's your first time, we're really glad that you can join us. Uh, if you've been invited uh, by a friend or you just uh, stumbled across us online, uh, we're really glad that you're here and we really uh, are excited uh, to celebrate Easter with you. Um, it's always a little bit confused on Good Friday whether we should be celebrating. You know, it's the day that Jesus died uh, and should we celebrate a death? It always feels a little bit awkward, never quite sure what to say to people on Good Friday. Easter Sunday, it's a little bit more straightforward. We can be excited. Resurrection, new life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, but Good Friday always feels a little bit strange. Uh, for the next little while, we're going to uh, be looking at uh, those passages that have been read. Uh, and we're going to uh, spend this time uh, in God's Word, uh, hearing what God has to say uh, to us about uh, what it means that Jesus died. Um, I'd love uh, if you could stick around after the service for a coffee and a hot cross bun in the plaza. We'd love to meet you and say good day. And um, also, if you're, I assume that if you're here on Good Friday, that you're one of the people who isn't going away for Easter. Uh, and so we'd love to see you on Easter Sunday as well, uh, as we kind of get part two of the Easter story. Uh, so please join us, same time, same place, uh, Easter Sunday. Um, I'm going to pray as we uh, look at God's Word and ask for God's Spirit to help us understand what His Word means for us. Uh, and that we might be changed by what God says. Uh, so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for your word, uh, that it explains what's going on as Jesus dies on a cross. Lord, we pray now that we might uh, be able to concentrate. Uh, Lord, please give me clarity as I speak. Uh, Lord, help us to understand uh, what it means for us and, and our identity that Jesus died for us. And Lord, we pray that you might uh, transform us by your word this morning. Amen. Uh, I want to begin by asking the question, how would you define yourself? What makes you, you? Have a think for a moment. 
Uh, a little while ago, I was uh, at the local pool and I was buying like a multi-visit pass. Uh, and because you're laying down a bit of cash for a multi-visit pass, they like to get some information about you uh, before they hand it over. Uh, they, I think they're just kind of working out who the, who the people are who use the pool. So they get you to fill in a form. Uh, I filled in the form, and, and as I began to fill in this form at the local pool, I realized that they were kind of categorizing me. They were putting me in their various boxes to understand what sort of swimmer I was. Uh, the, the first question that came at me, uh, how often do you visit the pool? Uh, that was a fairly straightforward question. Uh, I answered kind of probably like not very often, not often enough. Uh, the second question, are you male or female? I didn't mind answering that. I didn't have to think too hard about that one. The third question, though, this is where it got a little bit unfair, I felt, age. Uh, now, what was unfair was the options that they gave me. I could be 18 to 29, 30 to 39, or 40 to 59. And it was one of those ticker box exercises. So I couldn't tick the 40 to 59 and, and write down next to it. I'm just like just over into that box. I really feel like I identified with the box before. <laughs> I felt it was quite unfair. The fourth question job, occupation, industry. Now, you might not think that's all that hard, uh, but for me, that's an awkward one because uh, when it kind of gives you the drop-down list of all the jobs there are in the world, church and pastor are never one of them, so you've always got to tick the box other. And so at this point, I'm feeling not great about how the pool is defining me, how the pool, what the pool thinks I am or who I am. It's because supposedly, according to the pool, I'm a middle-aged man with a weird job who sporadically gets into his togs to go for a swim. Now, if you put it that way, that's not where I want to put myself in the world. That's not how I would like to define myself. But how would you define yourself? What makes you, you? What's essential to who you are? Is it what you do? Is it that you're a lawyer or a bus driver, uh, a nurse, a teacher, a footy player? What is it? Is it what you've done? Are you defined by your successes? Or are you defined by your failures? Maybe it's what's happened in your life. Are you a cancer survivor, a migrant, a widow? Maybe it's where you're from, a Kiwi, a Malaysian. Maybe you're Polish. Maybe you might even be brave enough to say that you're an Australian. <laughs> but what we usually do when we come to define ourselves is we take all these bits and pieces and we cobble them together and that becomes us. That becomes our identity. That's what makes you, you, and me, me. Now, by this point, you're probably wondering, what on earth does this have to do with Easter? Uh, I mean, Andrew, it's Good Friday. Uh, you're five minutes in. Uh, I came to church, uh, not for some pop psychology, but I came for Easter stuff. I want to know about the cross. I want to know about the tomb. Maybe uh, Easter bunnies and chocolate eggs. But Fair call, but stay with me. You see, I'm convinced if we get to grips with what's going on at Easter, if we can appreciate what is happening as Jesus dies on the cross, then we'll begin to see that the cross of Jesus is really our most defining moment. It's our most defining moment. Jesus' death on a cross, why he was there, what it has done for you, well, that trumps your job or your relationship status, or your family, or whatever's happened in your life. If you understand what happened as Jesus dies on the cross for you, it is the defining moment of your life. 
Now, come with me to Matthew chapter 27, uh, uh, which we've had read for us. It'd be great if you can have it open so you can see uh, what I'm saying is uh, coming from the Scriptures. Uh, and let's see what God's Word has to say about who we really are, what really defines us. Uh, now, the book of Matthew, it's one of the four biographies of Jesus that we have in the Bible. Uh, these are eyewitness testimonies to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and uh, during the service, we've, so far, we've read these events that happened. They all take place on Good Friday. Uh, these series of incidents that lead up to Jesus' death on the cross. And as we kind of go through these series of events that lead up to Jesus' death on the cross, there are two things we see really clearly. Uh, the first thing we see is the guilt of humanity. And the second thing we see is the grace of God. We see guilt and we see grace. And those two things are ultimately things that define who we are. Uh, now come with me uh, Come with me to the courtroom of Pontius Pilate. It actually begins before the courtroom. Uh, Pontius Pilate, he was the Roman governor of the time. Uh, and in this courtroom scene, we see this chaotic scene of humanity's guilt. Actually, the guilt of humanity was on display before the courtroom. Uh, just before this uh, episode, we, uh, if you were with us last week, we would have read about Judas. Uh, Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And if you have a look there in uh, chapter 27 in the Bibles at verse 3, uh, it says this, as Judas kind of conscience kicks in, uh, verse 3 it says, When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Uh, what we saw before was that Judas had kind of come to an agreement with the religious leaders that he would identify Jesus for them so that they could arrest him uh, and put him on trial. Uh, and, and Judas got some money for that, and now Judas has got the money, and he's feeling guilty. He has betrayed his friend. He's realized his sin, and so what he does is he takes the money and he tries to give it back to the religious leaders. Uh, and then when he does that, what do the religious leaders say in verse 6? Have a look at verse 6 there. Verse 6, the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this money in the treasury because it is blood money. Now here, the chief priests, the religious leaders of the times, they're the ones who had arranged for this sham trial of Jesus and now they even admit their guilt. You see, the silver that Judas brings back to them, they don't want to use it. They don't want to touch it. They know it's blood money, which means that they know that they are guilty too. And then we enter the court following Jesus. And Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the time. So uh, in, in Jerusalem, it was a, a Jewish city filled with Jewish people, but uh, they had previously been conquered by the Romans. And so there was a Roman governor who ruled over it, uh, who ruled over this kind of uh, Jewish uh, city, uh, this Jewish region. And the Roman governor was the only one who had the power to put someone to death. And so Pontius Pilate here, he is the man who holds Jesus' life in the balance. He is the only one who has the authority to put an end to this, this train of injustice that is taking place. But what does Pilate do? Well, the first question is, what does Pilate know? What does Pilate know? Verse 18, verse 18, for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. You see, Pilate knows, knows that the charges against Jesus, they're concocted, they're fabricated. He tells us again in verse 19, 19, or his wife does at least, verse 19, while Pilate was sitting in the judge's seat, his wife sends him a message on a Snapchat or TikTok or something. Uh, his phone beeps and it says, do not have anything to do with that innocent man. 
She knows he's innocent. And finally, verse 23, Pilate knows that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything deserving of death. As the crowds are calling louder and louder for Jesus' blood, Pilate says in verse 23, Why? What crime has he committed? You see, Pilate knows this whole trial is a sham. He knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that he has committed no crime. He knew it. But what did he do? Well, he sent Jesus to the cross anyway. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them. Verse 26, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. You see, Pilate here, he bows to the pressure of the crowd. He gives in to the will of the religious leader. Pilate here, he's actually actually choosing the path of his own self-interest. He sends the innocent Jesus to the cross. Uh, In the 19th century, there was an Anglican bishop called J.C. Ryle, really great, wise guy, careful reader of God's word, and he wrote this about Pilate. He wrote this, he said, He cared little how much he sinned against God and conscience, so long as he had the praise of man. He cared little how much he sinned against God, so long as he had the praise of man. That cuts a little close to the bone, doesn't it there? How many of us have chosen the praise of other people over maybe what God wants for us? You see, Pilate here, he's happy to portray God and send the innocent Jesus to the cross. He's happy to do that if that serves his own career, uh, if it keeps the peace, if it means that Pilate can sit down and send another glowing report back to head office in Rome about how swimmingly everything is going in Jerusalem. The last guilty party we see here in the court are the crowds. Uh, See, all of this took place at the time of Passover. Uh, They estimate there would have been about a million extra people in Jerusalem at Passover. And these crowds that have come to Jerusalem, they are whipped up into a frenzy by their religious leaders. You see, Pilate keeps pointing out to them that Jesus is innocent. Pilate keeps giving the crowds every opportunity not to commit the most wicked act ever in human history. Three times Pilate goes to the crowds with a chance for them to stop the execution of Jesus. The first is in verse 21 when he asks if they want Jesus released. You know, there's this tradition at Passover, kind of a goodwill gesture from the Romans where they would release a prisoner uh, that the people wanted. Uh, And so Pilate thinks, if I release Jesus, uh, that gets us all out of this sticky situation. Uh, injustice doesn't have to take place, Uh, the people will be happy, I've done my goodwill thing. Pilate offers Jesus, but the crowd says, no. And then second, Pilate asks the crowd, what do you want me to do with Jesus then? Verse 22, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. And the final chance in verse 23, why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. You see, the crowd has three chances to not go through with it. Three times they press on, roaring for Jesus to be killed. And so that's the trial we have here of Jesus. And it presents to us a compelling picture. A compelling picture of the guilt of humanity. You see, there is only one innocent person here, isn't there? 
There is only one innocent person, and that person is the one standing in the dock. The only innocent person here is Jesus, the one who is condemned to die. Judas betrayed him, guilty. The religious leaders framed him, guilty. Pilate failed him, guilty. And the crowds, they pleaded for his blood, guilty. They all stand guilty before Jesus. And while it's clear for us to see here that the, the guilt of those who have crucified Jesus, there is a sense in which we, we, we cannot help but see ourselves in it. See, we too are guilty. Uh, back in chapter 26, Jesus' own disciples, his own followers, they deny him out of cowardice. And who hasn't chickened out at some point and denied Jesus when things got difficult or awkward? Judas, one of his disciples, betrayed him out of greed. Who hasn't done that? Put our own financial well-being above that of Christ and his kingdom? The religious leaders have Jesus killed because they refuse to have him as their king. They refuse to hear his word. They refuse to follow him. Guilty as charged. The crowds call for his execution out of this kind of mob mentality. They're just going with the flow. Pilate, he abandons Jesus out of rank self-interest. Knows full well that Jesus is innocent, but he puts his own reputation, his own preferences, his own ease above what is right. And if I've got to be honest with you, it's like looking into a mirror. We've all treated Jesus like this. Ignored, denied, abandoned, just gone with, with what's popular, with what's easy, above what is right. We've chosen to put our interests first above that of Jesus and above that of others. And so we all stand before Jesus as guilty. Had we been there, we would have been swept up in the tide of selfishness and self-interest. You see, the sobering truth of this passage is that we are people who are defined by guilt. We stand before the creator of the world, the giver of every good gift, uh, and we've got a case to answer for how we've treated him and how we've treated the world that he's made and the hurt that we've done to one another. So who am I? Well, I'm not just a middle man who has a weird job, who sporadically gets into his togs and goes for a swim. I'm not just a pastor or a father or a husband or a friend. The Bible gives an uncomfortable but honest answer. Fundamentally, I am guilty before God. And if you're a human being with, lung, with air in your lungs and blood running through your veins, then that is true of you as well. See, the Bible is clear. Uh, Paul, the apostle, writes this in Romans chapter 3. He says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty before God. That's what defines every single one of us. But the beautiful news of the cross is that that is not the final answer. 
that doesn't have to be what defines us. Because although the cross is a defining moment of our guilt, the cross is the defining moment where we see so clearly God's grace, His grace towards us. You see, as this battered and bruised, bloodied man stands before this Roman governor, time and time again, we hear that Jesus has been condemned. He's condemned as the king of the Jews. You see, as the soldiers mock him and spit him and beat him, as they cry out, they cry out, he is the king of the Jews. As Jesus is nailed to the cross, the innocent one left to die a criminal's death, the sign above his head says, what? This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. As he hangs on the cross, as the, as the crowds walk past, mocking him and taunting him, they say, he's the king of Israel, the son of God. And why is Jesus going through this? Why is the king of the Jews going through this? Well, it's simple, really. Jesus, God's son, the promised king, he is crucified because we are guilty. Jesus, the innocent one, he dies on the cross so that we don't have to. Jesus lays down his life to save his people from their sins as their king. You see, this is the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Dying in our place, taking our guilt and taking our shame so that our lives no longer have to be defined by that guilt and shame. So that our lives can now be defined by the grace that God has shown us on the cross. You see, on the cross, as Jesus died, we see so clearly the mercy and the love and the amazing grace of the God who made us. And if you kind of want to enter into that, if you kind of want to know what that's like, uh, have a look at Barabbas here. Uh, obviously, in this story, Jesus is my favorite person. You, you kind of have to say that. But Barabbas, he, he's kind of my other favorite person in this story, right? If you want to know what it is like to have your life defined by the mercy and love of an amazing grace of God, look at Barabbas. So Barabbas is here in the court with Pilate. He's the other person that's under arrest. Now, Barabbas is a criminal. He's a crook. He's a murderer. He's a terrorist. Barabbas is guilty as charged, and everyone knows it. And he is standing there next to Jesus, the innocent one, the king of God's people. And what happens next? Well, verse 26. Verse 26, have a look there. Then he, that is Pilate, releases Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, kind of step into Barabbas' sandals for a moment. The chains that were on your wrists and around your feet, they are taken off and they are put on Jesus. Imagine your Barabbas. You are free because he is condemned. Imagine you're Barabbas and you choose to stick around and you follow Jesus at a distance and you follow him and you see that Jesus is being nailed to the cross and you're watching Jesus die in the most horrible way and you watch and you know 
You totally deserve to be there. But now it is falling on Jesus. You're standing there thinking, it should be you up on that cross. It literally is. That is your cross. And Jesus, the innocent one, is dying so that you, the guilty, can go free. And if that were you, wouldn't that be a defining moment? Wouldn't that totally reshape your life forever? Someone else has taken my guilt and my shame. And so now, now I am free. I'm free to live a life that is not defined by guilt and shame anymore, but live a life that is defined by God's mercy and God's grace. Barabbas would have walked away from there with a second chance at life, no longer defined by the mistakes that he'd made in his past but now defined by the love that God had shown him through his mercy and grace as Jesus died in his place. I wonder if this Good Friday might be a defining moment for you. I wonder, are you going to kind of, uh, maybe you've heard about this before, are you, are you, are you going to carry on sitting on the fence, holding Jesus at arm's length, ignoring the grace that God has offered you, passing up on the innocent King of Kings who came and died on the cross for you, or will you accept his mercy and grace? Receive the, the freedom and the forgiveness that comes by being defined not by your guilt and your shame anymore, but by God's grace and mercy shown to you because God loves you as his child. And can I just say that if that is what your identity is based on, if your identity is based not on what you do, not on where you're from, not on what's happened to you in your life, not on your relationships, but if your identity is based on God's love for you in Jesus, there is no freer thing that can happen in your life. Because your relationships can change. Your job can come and go. You can't control what happens to you in your life. But one thing is certain and one thing is sure. Jesus has died for you because God loves you. You can have your identity based in that. That will never change. Based in God's mercy and his grace. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to share uh, in uh, what we call the Lord's Supper, uh, communion together. Um, uh, like Andy said, uh, uh, if you're someone who trusts and follows Jesus, this is a great meal to celebrate. If you're someone who does not yet trust and follow Jesus, then um, it's something that we uh, would love to share with you in the future. So please listen to the words. Uh, but maybe for the first time, you want to put your trust in Jesus. You want to receive the mercy and grace that he has shown you on the cross. Then this would be a great way to start finding your identity in him by joining us in sharing the Lord's Supper together. I was going to finish with these words um, from a, another pastor, which I think captures so clearly what we see here in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, this guy's called Tim Keller, and he says, uh, 
The gospel says, or the cross says, that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. But you are more accepted and loved than you ever dare hoped. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. That he laid down his life, the innocent one, died on the cross for us. So that we might not be defined by guilt and shame anymore. But that we can be a people who live in confidence as we are defined by your mercy and your grace. And Lord, we pray that this might be a defining moment for us. Where we are welcomed into your family. Where we no longer live for ourselves, but live for you. And so, Lord, we are, th- we are so thankful for what you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Uh, if the band want to come up... Um, we're going to respond to what we've heard in God's Word, and uh, really the only response is to say thank you, to say thanks to God for what He has done for us in Jesus. So that's what we're going to do as we sing together. Uh, so we please stand as we sing. <laughs>